0: I always suppose my Ikigai is learning and teaching. And still, I think learning and teaching is the core component of my Ikigai. However, in terms of terminology, I can be a little bit more specific now, because when I reflect on it, I think my Ikigai is the love of understanding something. So when I talk about learning, I'm talking about understanding of something, a moment of epiphany or saturi, When you have an aha moment and you say, wow, that's it. I understood it. So that's my first Ikigai.
1: This is Nick Kemp with the Ikigai podcast. Japanese wisdom for a fulfilling and meaningful life. Find your Ikigai at ikigaitribe.com. This is Nick Kemp with episode 40 of the Ikigai Podcast, and my guest today is Dr. Yazdan Mansourian, and Dr. Yazdan Mansorian is a lecturer in the School of Information and Communication Studies at Charles Stewart University in Wagga Wagga, New South Wales. Yazdan, you received your PhD in Information Science from the University of Sheffield in 2006. You have a Bachelor of Science degree in Agricultural Engineering from Guyan University. And you have a Master's of Arts degree in Library and Information Science from Ferdowsi University in Mashhad. Along with your wife, you are also a librarian and you have a sports-mad teenage son. And I was introduced to your lovely 10-year-old Border Collie, whose name is Rebel, and you adopted Rebel and he's quite old, so he's not that uh, rebellious. And yeah, you are originally from Iran and you've lived in the UK where you received your PhD and now you reside in Australia. So thank you for joining me today.
0: Um, Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Indeed, I'm really excited about today's episode. Your life seems to be driven by your desire to learn and share information. And as a result, you have traveled and lived in several countries. Do you want to touch on how you came to become a lecturer in Wagga Wagga, New South Wales?
0: Yes, sure. Thank you for the introduction. Actually, after finishing my PhD in the UK, I returned to my home country, Iran, and I began my academic career as a lecturer in library and information science at Kharazm University in Tehran. And I was a faculty member at Khwarezm University for almost 11 years. Uh, Then uh, I applied for an academic position at CSU, and I joined the School of Information and Communication Studies in August 2017. And since then, I have been teaching various library information science subjects like information society, information sources and services, and also I have a Research program about human information behavior in the context of serious leisure. And I think I should define what I mean by human information behavior and what is serious leisure for the rest of this podcast.
1: Sure. Yeah, you do have this incredible academic background, and clearly you have this love of learning. And you actually reached out to me several times and sent me a paper which you wrote titled Information Sharing in Serious Leisure as a Source of Ibasho and Tanoshimi, a narrative from bonsai growers in Australia. (laughs) So I was pretty interested when you sent me this paper. So I'm really glad you did. Obviously, information sharing and, and serious leisure and these terms or concepts, Ibasho and Tanoshimi are things I'm very passionate about, and also learning bonsai has been one of those things I've always thought, oh, I'd love to practice that, but uh, <laughs> I feel that I'm too old now, so <laughs> but I guess you're never too old. Now, what's interesting, Yes, Dan, you actually have a connection to Japan. You spent three months in Japan as a visiting scholar at the University of Tsukuba in Ibaraki Prefecture. So when was that, and how was that experience?
0: Yeah, it was an amazing experience, uh, actually. It was uh, 2012. I have been invited as a visiting scholar for the summer, from July to September. And I feel so lucky having the chance to visit Japan. And like many others, I am fascinated by the richness of Japanese culture, their cuisine, and the kindness and politeness of people. And interesting enough, in that time, I was interested in the job market for librarians and information professionals uh, globally. So b- before my interest in leisure, I was interested in the concept of work. <laughs> so I began my journey in leisure from work, the other side. Uh, so, oh. yeah, in that time when I was there, I continued my research about a job market for a librarian and and information professionals. And um, I have done a number of studies and I shared the findings with my uh, colleagues at the Scuba University. Uh, so, uh, for example, I reviewed a sample of 100 library uh, and information science job advertisements to identify the career opportunities and uh, the, you know, career Options for librarians so uh, and I shared the results with people in that time and then after that, uh, I became interested to leisure because when you think about the concept of work, inevitably you need to think about the concept of leisure because they are so you know connected and there is a blurred border between work and leisure. So for some people, Something is absolutely leisure and for some people it's just their work. So that was the beginning of my journey about leisure. And because of my academic background in information discipline, I look at the leisure from information science perspective. Uh, so in information science discipline, we have a research area called information behavior, human information behavior. And by this term, human information behavior, the totality of interaction with all sorts of information resources in different contexts. So we have a number of concepts like information needs, information seeking, information sharing, and even uh, information avoidance, you know. And then we can actively engage with information resources or passively receive information. So, for example, when you are watching TV, you are receiving information, but you are not seeking anything. But when you have a question, you go to visit all websites or books or go to the library to actively locate what you need. So it's a fascinating area for research, And then we look at all of these information activities from different perspectives. For example, in one study, you might be interested to find out the emotional aspects of information sharing in a leisure context, or you might think about the cognitive aspects of information seeking in health context or educational context. So that's uh, the complexity of information behavior in different contexts makes it so fascinating. Yeah.
1: It does make it fascinating and information sharing is is something we'll we'll touch on. Before we do that though, how was your experience of communicating your research and sharing your ideas in Japan?
0: You know when I was there, of course it was summer time. Uh, so and then I had the chance to talk with people in that uh, school. Uh, and also having some online communication with other people in different parts of the world. So yeah, but I realized that um, to be successful in that academic context, you need to spend much longer time. So that was a very short visit. So I'm hoping in future, I will be able to visit Japan again and spend, for example, a year or so over there. So, you know, in that time, I had to Return to my position in Iran in my work. So it was not possible, but hopefully in future I'll be able to visit there again. In particular, regarding my current research project, which is about bonsai growing, which is very yeah, relevant yeah. to Japan, <laughs> Japanese culture.
1: Yeah, that, that would be the place to do it. So did you have the help of an interpreter or did the people you speak with, were they fluent in English? How did you go about Yeah, communicating and sharing ideas.
0: No, we didn't have any interpreters. We spoke in English uh, because all of them were academics, so it was not a problem, and uh, we just communicated in English. Uh, And for all of us, for me and for them, English was the second language, so (laughs) we managed to communicate perfectly well, yeah.
1: (laughs) I see. Yeah, that must be fascinating, communicating with people in a second language. When you're from different yes. cultures.
0: The only problem was I was not able to read Japanese. So, you know, going to supermarkets, you know, <laughs> looking at all these uh, foods and stuff, you know, most in Japanese. So that was the problem for us. But in general, you have been there for, uh, you said, 10 years or so. And you know much more about Japan and how wonderful it is to be there and how uh, polite people are and how kind they are. And we had a lovely time over there. I'm always looking forward to visiting Japan again.
1: Me too, yeah. I can't wait to go back. And I I guess the work I do now really opens the door to go back. So, yeah, let's touch on your paper. And the title of the paper, again, is Information Sharing in Serious Leisure as a Source of Ibashol and Tonoshimi, a narrative from bonsai growers in Australia. So we're connecting a, a few countries here. I think we should start by defining serious leisure. So what is serious leisure?
0: Serious leisure is a a term coined by Dr. Robert Stevens in 1982. It includes hobbies, uh, amateurism, and voluntary activities with six criteria. Okay. Perseverance and commitment, potentiality to turn into a career, a significant personal effort, a durable personal and social benefits, unique ethos within a social work, and personal and social identity. However, to understand serious leisure, we need to look at it in a bigger picture. And by bigger picture, here I mean we have different kinds of uh, leisure. And based on the level of engagement and commitment, With the leisure activities, then we can identify different kinds of leisure. For example, in one side of this spectrum, we have casual leisure. And casual leisure, like play, relaxation, or Mm -hmm. passive entertainment, you don't need any specific skills or knowledge or commitment or dedication, like reading a novel, watching TV, walking in a park, They are all casual leisure for pure pleasure. Yes. Mm -hmm. And of course, nothing wrong with that. It's very essential for our well-being. We all need to relax. We all need to rest. And it's a very important part of our daily life. But it's casual leisure. But it can get a little bit more uh, serious. We call it project-based leisure. Uh, the best example for that is uh, do it yourself projects. For example, you go to Bunnings and you buy a dog kennel and you bring it home and you need to set it up, something we have done forever. Uh, and then, <laughs> or traveling or attending cultural events or arranging a birthday party so for example today is the birthday of my son we had a birthday party last night so nice uh, (laughs) so it's just a project-based leisure which is uh, occasional or it might be just only once in lifetime so it it needs a little bit of uh, skills but minimal level of skills so for example a do-it-yourself projects is based on the minimal level of skills, and almost everyone can do that. It's not that difficult. However, in the higher level of leisure, which is uh, called serious pursuits, we have serious leisure and devotee work. And serious leisure is what I am focusing in my research. And as I said earlier, it includes hobbies, volunteer activities, and amateurism. So before going any further, I stop here uh, and then we can <laughs> follow the other questions. Yeah? Because I can talk about serious leisure for the whole of the episode and it's not that that much interesting. Because people can <laughs> read about that. There is a website called Serious Leisure Perspective. I share the link with you and you can share it with everyone uh, who are listening here. And then they can have a look. Yeah.
1: Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll put that in the sh- show notes. So, first of all, happy birthday to your son. So, how Thank you. how old is he turning?
0: Yeah, uh, eighteen.
1: Yeah, eighteen. Wow, he's a, oh, yes. same as my son. So he's officially, <laughs> yeah. officially an adult. I guess in Australia we get all these privileges. He can he can drive. He can drink. <laughs> Definitely,
0: uh, yeah.
1: Awesome. And actually, we had a chat a few days ago about this subject. And you actually said to me, what I do is a form of serious leisure. And it, it did get me thinking. And yeah, I'm very passionate and, and dedicated to my research and, and sharing knowledge about guys. So I guess for me, it is a form of um, serious leisure. It's not just my work. And it's not just a hobby, it's certainly challenging and um, I spend a lot of time and dedication to it. So this idea of serious leisure is fascinating and you just made this distinction, it is it is different to, let's say, a hobby, which we could perhaps define as either a, a casual leisure, but some people do take their hobbies quite seriously. So is there a difference between Serious leisure and perhaps someone who does practice their hobby, let's say, three times a week?
0: It depends how much time and energy and dedication you consider for your hobby. First of all, I need to emphasize that it doesn't have to be serious for everyone. You know, it's just if you are interested to spend more time on your hobby and you enjoy it, that's fine but it's not a kind of desirable situation that everyone should have a serious leisure activity. And regarding those uh, six criteria that I mentioned earlier, someone might have one of these criterion more than the other. Mm-hmm. So for example, for someone like you, you are turning it into your career, for example. Yes. So, so it's becoming your work. And then that's fine. For someone else, it might just stay in the hobby level, which is still fine. So uh, the point here is just as long as an activity is enjoyable, meaningful, and you are passionate about, that's your serious leisure. And um, it can be anything. So in my research, I identified three levels, pleasure, passion, and purpose. And people go through all these levels. They might be in different situations. And at the end of the day, it's unique for every one of us. And that's another interesting aspect of that. It doesn't have to be very serious. And also it can be too serious and become an obsession or addiction or whatever. (laughs) So we need to be careful. So it's not all about the positive side. So... People that uh, research about this area, they identified some unintended consequences of becoming too serious about something, you know? So, yeah, moderation is always good.
1: Yes. Well, it's interesting because we, we often take our work too seriously. We, we overwork. Yeah. And, and now with obviously working at home and computers and the internet, there is that possibility of, of working every day. So I do like this idea of serious leisure. But as you say, I think it is important we, we keep all things in moderation. Definitely. And I think it always comes back to your your management of energy, because um, I imagine some some hobbies where it's let's say sports based, you definitely need time to recover. And then if your gaming is your hobby. <laughs> Well, you don't want to be doing doing too much gaming because that can be very detrimental to your health. But something like bonsai sounds fascinating as a serious leisure pursuit. Yeah. And your paper used bonsai as an example of serious leisure, and your study's aim was to discover how bonsai hobbyists seek, evaluate, organize, share, create, and curate information related to their hobby of bonsai.
0: Definitely, yeah.
1: So that's all fascinating. (laughs) It sounds like a a lot of uh, research. But let's start with what is the practice of bonsai? Uh,
0: Yeah, before answering this question, I need to share my story about how I ended up, uh, you know, doing this research about bonsai, (laughs) you know, Um, because it's important uh, because it happened very or in an organic and natural way you know when i began my research program about serious leisure i have done my first project exploring serious leisure in various groups of people and i used maximum variation sampling to include people from all sorts of you know hobbies and volunteer activities and i interviewed a number of people like bird watchers gardeners and from different kinds of hobbies. And one of them was a bonsai grower. And when she was talking about her hobby, I realized that bonsai ticks all the boxes as a serious leisure. So, so it's a really, it can be serious, but at the same time, it's open to everyone. So you can be a very, you know, in a basic level and enjoy bonsai, or you can dedicate your life bonsai so it's open to everyone in all levels and that's why I was interested in bonsai and uh, basically bonsai is a combination of sophisticated horticultural skills aesthetic principles because it's an art you know and mindfulness and the practice of planting shaping and preserving trees in Shallow containers to represent an ideal form of nature, and the word bonsai include two parts. A bone means a shallow container, such as a pot or tray, and sai means planting. So, in a very simple and basic definition, a bonsai is a tree planted in a shallow container. Yes. <laughs> uh, but as you know, not every potted plant is a bonsai. <laughs> so. As I said earlier, bonsai is a combination of many things. And um, regarding what I learned from bonsai growers, because I am not a bonsai grower, I'm just observing what they do. I interview them. Uh, I'm learning from what they do. Based on what I learned, almost any kind of tree can be a bonsai. Of course, it depends on the climate and how experienced you are. It's different. And there are some popular bonsai species, such as jade tree, Chinese elm, juniper, a Japanese maple, a pine trees, different kinds of figs, and also some Australian native plants are very popular at the moment in Australia, like lilypili, silver banksia, a bottle brush, white cypress pine, a gum tree, so all sorts of that. And this uh, practice needs a high level of skill. So you need to constantly learn something, you know. They have to learn how to feed them, how to trim them, how to do pruning, how to use different kinds of fertilizer. So because it's easy to kill a bonsai, it's difficult to keep it alive. (laughs) And And they told me something very interesting that you never own a bonsai. The bonsai owns you. Because you are just a custodian because a good bonsai can live for several generations. And some of the bonsai growers told me that, for example, these tree my grandfather gave it to me. So they can live for hundreds of years. So that's fascinating. And it's a, an art, it's a mindfulness, it's a combination of many things. And I'm thinking after almost a year researching about Just bonsai as a serious leisure, it's a lifestyle, basically. You know, it changes your lifestyle in its own slow and mindful way.
1: Hey there, Nick Kemp here, and I wanted to touch base and let you know about my new course, the Find Your Ikigai course, developed in consultation with Japan's leading ikigai researchers The Find Your Ikigai course is the only culturally accurate and evidence-based practical guide to the Ikigai concept. If you are interested in learning more about the Find Your Ikigai course, please visit ikigaitribe.com. Now back to the episode. I'm not surprised by that idea that the pursuit of Bonsai owns you. That's that sounds very typical of a Japanese um, culture or Japanese philosophy. And then I'm also amazed that gum trees can be a type of bonsai species. Gum trees grow to be very large, and I guess they're iconic and they're famous for being the homes of koalas and producing eucalyptus leaves. Yeah. So that's interesting. The the bonsai is not a type of. Tree, it's the practice of growing a tree or planting a tree in a shallow pot, and it can outlast you as the hobbyist. And you mentioned it ticks all these requirements of serious leisure, yeah. Uh, So it made the perfect example for you to study. And it also sounds like people who practice bonsai would be very passionate about this because. I guess they can't afford to neglect the tree for more than a few days or a few weeks to water and trim it and do all those things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, interesting of uh, one of the questions that I asked from bonsai growers, I asked them uh, what is the main obstacle you have in this practice and most of them said we can't travel uh, for yeah. a long term because it's not just a normal uh, plant you ask your neighbor to come and water them you know you need to ask another bonsai grower to take care of your bonsai when you are away so they need to basically develop their activities around this bonsai so so they need to be really passionate and dedicated and i was impressed and amazed how passionate they are that some of them have been doing this for for example, forty-five years, fifty years—amazing, you know. It must be something there, something that keeps them dedicated and passionate. There is a secret over there.
1: That—that <laughs> that is amazing. Yes. Yeah, so, so, this idea of this commitment to this practice of bonsai, and to the point where it, it prevents people from traveling, reminds me of another Japanese concept. And you state that bonsai growing is a Excellent example of kodowari. Yes. So would you like to touch on that, on what kodowari is and and why you associate it to bonsai?
0: Yes. So this is another story, how uh, the concept of ikigai, kodowari, ibacho and all of these Japanese conceptual frameworks I'm using in my research. Uh, You know, when I was interviewing bonsai growers, Most of them told me we wake up in the morning, and the first thing we do in the morning is just (laughs) taking care of our bonsai. And when they told me, when they shared that story with me, then suddenly I remembered I have already read it somewhere. There was a Japanese term for that, and I couldn't remember. And then I just because during the past five years I have been exploring leisure studies literature. So I was thinking, what was that Japanese term? And then I remembered, wow, it was a paper. That paper is here at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, The paper is Theorizing Leisure's Role in the Pursuit of Ikigai, Life Worthiness, a Mixed Methods Approach, written by Dr. Shinturo Kono and his colleagues, published in Leisure Science. And that was another turning point. And I said, wow, that's Ikigai. So that's exactly what I need. And then I just searched about Ikigai and then I found your website. <laughs> <laughs> and I was listening to the episodes and in one of the episodes, uh, Dr. Shintaro Kono was talking and I said, wow, that's Shintaro Okono. <laughs> 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 so all these dots just connected to each other. And then I started reading about ikigai and i just ordered a number of books like this one uh, ikigai uh, yeah by ken mogi's and many other books and articles that i'm exploring and then what i did in a very short and simple way if i want to explain it what i did i mapped my empirical data into these Conceptual frameworks of Ikigai and its related terms. Because okay. as you know, there are a number of concepts all relevant, like Ikigai, hatarikigai, uh, Asobi-gai, that all the episodes you had about all these concepts and kudowari. So answering your question, I still remember your question. I didn't forget that. That was the <laughs> introduction. Sorry. So the kudowari. It's just pursuing perfection, realizing you never get it. So you keep going, but you know there is no perfect final ultimate point. But you keep going. So for bonsai, it's exactly what they do. So they keep working on a tree to make it as beautiful as possible, to represent an ideal form of nature, but they know they never reach that. But it doesn't stop them to continue. And interestingly enough, this is the other... Uh, Kudowari and Wabi Sabi are two sides of the same coin. Mm. Because in Wabi Sabi, you accept the imperfection, incomplete, and, you know, that everything is ephemeral, and you accept it. And you seek the beauty in that context. But on the other hand, in Kodawari, you do your best to make it as perfect as possible. So having both of them makes it like a paradox. But these two sides can coexist peacefully together.
1: I was going to say, that's really interesting because it reminds me of my father-in-law. He makes pottery. He makes traditional tea ceremony cups, matchawan. And Wabi Sabi is definitely a yeah an aesthetic related to traditional pottery, and you're right. He and his sons have spent countless hours perfecting their craft and and making these beautiful cups. Yet once they fire them, they never know what's going to happen to the yeah. matcha jawan. It can come out slightly cracked. It'll shrink. So yeah, there are these two elements at play of. Uh, kodowari, so going to extreme care with the fine details of one's work, but also this understanding of wabi-sabi, this acceptance that you have limited control and there's this natural aspect to certain crafts, I think. So pottery deals with clay, water, uh, fire. So it is, it is fascinating how Japanese understand this in their hobbies or in their serious leisure and can accept that and they pursue perfection knowing they'll never get it. Whereas perhaps in the West, we don't think like that.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. And that's why these Japanese concepts like ikigai or wabi-sabi are very difficult to define because there are so many components and elements exist at the same time together. So these concepts are uh, multifaceted and yes. um, mm. so they, they have different aspects and they are paradoxical in one way or another and that's why they are open to interpretation and sometimes interpretation can be wrong just like the <laughs> Venn diagram
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> that
0: yeah. you are trying to fix it <laughs> in mm. your Website and podcasts, so of course there are always positive and negative sides. So when something is that complex, then it can be a source of misunderstanding for people. But on the other hand, it can be so inspiring because it's open, you know, it can inspire you in many ways, you can learn from it. And because uh, I have been familiar with many paradoxical concepts from my own culture, from Iranian culture... Like, for example, in Iranian mysticism, we have paradoxical concepts like the wisdom of madness, you know, oh. <laughs> the richness of <laughs> poverty. <laughs> so I was comfortable with these ironies. Uh, and that's basically it was the beginning of my interest about serious leisure because serious leisure is also ironic, it's like an oxymoron. So it's serious, but it's leisure. It's leisure, but it's still serious. <laughs> so, so that's it makes it very fascinating, and I love that.
1: It is inspiring, as you said. I love how you said it is inspiring when we can open our mind to these concepts, and it's unusual how typically the Western mindset seeks to understand something quickly and try and understand it with a definition and i know i do this myself so it's this sort of habit of the west that i've learnt to break out of with my connection to japan with with all these words we're talking about ikigai wabi sabi kodawari you need long conversations with many different people yeah so that's what i encourage i sort of say open your mind to to having long conversations on these subjects and if you do yeah you have this richness and inspiration in your mind
0: definitely
1: and it's this ongoing journey of learning and appreciating a culture different to your own
0: definitely yeah it's a very slow process it's an example of a slow movement you know uh, in a slow movement we are talking about a slow traveling a slow research a slow education a slow food so uh, to understand these concepts, you need to uh, spend time, and it's evolving. So, if you have a similar uh, discussion, for example, next year or next six months, then we will talk about other aspects of it. So, every time it's different. Yeah, that concept of ichigo ichie, you know, <laughs> it's just <laughs> I love that ichigo ichie. Mm, yeah. That
1: one one encounter will never happen again. So this.
0: Definitely. Even if we
1: record 100 podcasts together, each one will be different. So I guess for your bonsai enthusiasts, or not your bonsai enthusiasts, but for bonsai enthusiasts in general, it opens them up to the world of Japanese culture and they gain some understanding of these ideas of maybe wabi-sabi or kodawari. Even if they don't understand the concepts, they intuitively get some grasp of what they mean by by their practice of bonsai growing, that it's this lifelong commitment, it's done in small steps, and they have to also understand that they're not in full control. I noted in your notes you've mentioned the word arugamama. Yeah. It was um, something I talked about with um, Dr. Holly Saga about this idea of the true nature of things. So it goes beyond yeah. acceptance and that the true nature of things would say, well, if you <laughs> if you want to care for a bonsai tree, <laughs> it's going to be a, a lifelong commitment and you have limited control on what will happen.
0: Yeah, you know, um, the findings of my uh, research about bonsai grower. of course, this is an ongoing research. I haven't finished it yet. I'm still collecting data and I'm still, you know, reflecting on what bonsai growers shared with me, and the findings up to this stage indicate that engagement in this hobby requires passion, dedication, and constant learning. And as a result of that, bonsai growers need so much information to pursue their passion. So they need a specific knowledge to nourish and preserve their trees, keep them in good shape and health, and The primary source of their knowledge is fellow bonsai growers with more experience. So therefore, when I asked them, what is your advice for a newcomer to this hobby? Almost all of them immediately said, join a club, Mm. join a club. And that is exactly when this personal hobby becomes a social activity.
1: Yeah. Mm. Well, this is where we get into, the, the, I guess, the concept of ibasho yes. and this idea of information sharing. So, really, your your paper was about information sharing using bonsai as a wonderful example. Yes. And I guess we can only share information in a social context. And yes, the Japanese language again has this another amazing word to describe that ibasho. So, yeah, would you like to talk about that? in the context of your study?
0: oh Yes. Uh, You know, in my area of research, human information behavior, we can't write a paper about information behavior in general because it's too broad. So we Mm. need to be specific in each paper. So, for example, in one paper, I might just talk about information needs in another one, information seeking, and that's it. In this paper, I'm just talking about information sharing. Why information sharing? Because my research over the past five years showed me that among all these information activities, information sharing is the most joyful activity. Not necessarily because of the importance or significance of the information, just because of the communication nature, because sharing is caring, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just when you share something with someone it means you care about that about that concept that you are caring about that person so and before this project that i'm interviewing bonsai growers during the pandemic i have done a internet-based research about information sharing in bonsai a hobby as a coping mechanism you know oh, wow. uh, yeah and i shared the link with you here and then in that internet-based study uh, i didn't interview anyone i just uh, searched through bonsai youtubes and i used the comments that people shared on the most visited bonsai youtubes um youtube videos and the result of that research showed me that the remarkable capacity of serious leisure, in this case bonsai growing, to link and unite people during a crisis was one of uh, the main elements here. And people who are passionate about bonsai, they created virtual hobbies around voice, bonsai, their shared interest talking about uh, their hobby, and obviously, without this hobby, gathering this group of people and uh, encouraging them to speak to one another and share their experience and knowledge was almost impossible. And the finding also showed a range of people related to this hobby enjoy the process and product of a bonsai. And interestingly enough, not all of them were bonsai growers. Some of them were just interested. They just look at what other people have done. So this concept of information sharing creates communities of interest, and then it might be communities of practice, because a unifying element, like a Mm -hmm. hobby, encourages people to get together and share information with each other. So, for example, Bonsai Grower, in the current project that I'm interviewing people, they told me when we we have a question, before searching any website or going to books or, you know, other printed materials, we call a friend.
1: It becomes this form of intimacy. Yes. And this is something I discovered through my own community, through sharing and, and learning from others, this idea of Ikigai that we all care about, Zoom calls I've had and the conversations become very intimate. So there's this intellectual intimacy, but it often becomes emotional and you begin to understand how important Ikigai is to these members and you you share aspects about your personal life. So I imagine the same happens with many other hobbies and There often also has another concept, perhaps there's the senpai-kohai relationship where you have someone who has more experience, the senpai, who becomes someone to rely on and someone to to ask for help. And you have kohai members who, I guess, are new to bonsai growing. And this relationship develops, but it's done in this community that can be defined as anybah show where people can be comfortable being themselves asking yeah. for help and and sharing perhaps they share images or videos of their own bonsai trees or as you said there are just people interested wanting to to learn and it's it's fascinating how we can have these very important social dynamics around a unifying hobby or idea <laughs> as you know remarkably rare and niche as exactly bonsai and that's that's how you describe ibasho. you actually use the term niche as probably the the closest word in english yeah so would you like to touch on that too
0: the good news is in leisure studies scholarship these concepts like ikigai ikebana uh, you know it's becoming very popular and people are reflecting on that and uh, For example, thinking about synonym words in other languages creates discussion, (laughs) and this discussion is very productive. So another remarkable capacity of these concepts are their importance in terms of generating dialogue, you know. So for example, I am not a bonsai grower, you are not a bonsai grower, but we are talking about it here. Why? Why? Because it has that potential. Because Mm. I am interested in human information behavior. You are interested in ikigai and Japanese culture. Then we have something to share based on this hobby. So, yeah, because it's very specific, because it's very unique, it makes it so fascinating. And people who are involved in that practice or hobby... And then they create that niche. They create that safe environment when you can be yourself. You can go there and show your interest, show your vulnerability. You know, Yeah. when you go to a bonsai grower club with all peoples, people who have been involved in this hobby for years with so much experience and you know nothing about it you have to show your vulnerability and that's amazing because it's just the beginning of communication, beginning of social tie, social bond. So for example, I attended an exhibition here in Wagga Wagga. It was the celebration of the 40 years of bonsai club in Wagga and obviously I I have nothing to share in terms of bonsai rather than what I learned from other bonsai growers. So I went there. They were so welcoming. They were so kind. Why? Because they are passionate about what they do. They love what they do. They don't have to do it. They don't get paid to do it because it's not an obligation or a task. They do it because they love it. And because it's not competition. Of course, they have exhibition. They find the best bonsai. They gave prize to best. You know, practice, that's fine. But beyond that competition is collaboration. So they collaborate with each other. And that's why we have 57 bonsai club just in Australia.
1: Wow.
0: <laughs> it also highlights that the
1: eBashel concept, it includes roles. And so within each club, I'm sure every individual has some sort of role. Maybe yeah. you have someone who has lots of experience and can offer advice on how to grow them. Maybe there's someone there who's has great knowledge on growing, you know, just gum trees yes. for bonsai. And maybe you have someone who doesn't have a lot of experience, but maybe, you know, they help in other ways. Maybe they make sure everything's running on time or getting people together. And so that's the beauty of eBashol, that you can be vulnerable, but everyone can have some sort of role. And they're sharing their ikigai, I guess, in this specific context. It's this opportunity to share something that, you know, makes your life worth living, sharing this knowledge and learning from others. So it is fascinating how it often comes out of hobbies. I know of another niche. It's actually an online niche. I'm not really a part of it, but I saw it and thought about mentioning it in my book. But there is a community of guitarists who make this guitar based on yeah. Edward Van Halen's guitar, and there's, there's quite a few Facebook groups, and you have members who some actually will provide you with the body parts of the guitar, some offer advice on how to paint it, and you have all these people from men in their 60s to teenagers sharing their photos as they make their own version of this guitar. And, yeah, there are no stupid questions. Anyone can ask any question. Everyone's helpful, and it's all built around this love for, you know, obviously this guitarist and his guitar that he made famous. It's fascinating. It's these hobbies that make people's lives worth living, yeah. rather than the, the Western interpretation where it's it has to be entrepreneurship or your dream job. So I, I really like this idea of serious leisure being a source of ikigai. Yeah. And as we both know, it's also something for us <laughs> or for, for people to look forward to, which yeah. is defined by this word, tonoshimi. Yeah. And this was one of my favorite words when I first started living in Japan, I would hear it all the time and I'd think, wow, they really <laughs> they really use this expression to look forward to. Is how I understood it at the time. I'd be saying something like, "Oh, I'm going to see Forrest Gump on the weekend." You know, the movie. Yeah. Like, "Ah, tanoshimi ne." And I'd be thinking, "Wow, they use that word all the time." So how how do you understand the word tanoshimi?
0: Tanashimi is also one of my favorite words in this conceptual (laughs) framework. Why? Because there is another specific reason. You know, in my discipline, information science, for almost four decades, uh, scholars in human information behavior focused on all the negative aspects of information activities, like information anxiety, information overload, Uh, Information poverty, information pollution, and the list goes on and on and on. (laughs) But recently, a few scholars highlighted the fact that why we are not focusing on the positive sides of information activities. An emerging term in my discipline is the joy of information. Nice. So, yeah, the joy of information and working on that, find out how joyful can be information seeking and information sharing and all information activities. And because I focused on that, I had to explore the concept of joy in um, well-being studies, in positive psychology. And I learned about why joy is important. And Tanashobe was one of the terms that is exactly what I'm looking for because Tanoshimi is another culturally unique concept in Japan which means enjoyment fun or hobby that something that you are looking forward to experiencing it in a mm. context and you anticipate a positive outcome so and my research shows that tanoshimi can be a powerful and unique concept to understand how people engage with leisure activities and how it can be a source of comfort and joy and transformation for them and how they can feel that in their leisure activities to make their activity as rewarding as possible and to provide a positive outcome out of what they are doing. Emotional aspect of this concept is related to What I'm doing. As I said earlier, I'm trying to map my empirical data into this conceptual framework. And I explore it in different disciplines. And that's why my research is multidisciplinary because it's relevant to well-being. And that's another aspect of information behavior. We used to be focused on just information behavior, but recently we are moving towards other disciplines what we can learn from them, what we can share with them, what we can do together, you know? So, yeah.
1: Yeah. This, this word is fascinating. And I actually stumbled upon another paper by Dr. Shintaro Kono. Yes. About Tanoshimi, how it was important for the recovery of people who uh, suffered from the tsunami and earthquake, which is more than 10 years ago. And, For them, it was something very simple. For one man, it was the idea and and training to return to running marathons, and for another survivor, it was being involved with the community garden and just imagining how flowers would bloom in this community garden. And the word he used was tanoshimi. But I also want to touch on how it's interesting how you've mentioned there in the last, I guess, what, 20 years, there's been this focus on the positive angle of information. And this seems to tie in also with positive psychology, and that's really only been a, a movement in the last 20 years. But here in Japan, they seem to have words that define these concepts. One way to look at Tanoshimi is to understand it as anticipatory pleasure and things to look forward to, having things to look forward to can help you if you're dealing with a crisis. And you write about this and, yeah, there's this remarkable capacity, you write, of serious leisure to link and unite people during a crisis and that was something you identified. So do you want to touch on that as well?
0: Yeah, that was uh, during the pandemic that I have done this internet-based. Uh, I have done a few internet-based research uh, uh, projects about serious leisure during the pandemic because in that time, it was not possible to see people. We were just at home <laughs> and, you know. So I have done a project about bird watchers. Okay. And uh, yeah, and also pottery. Uh, the result of that pottery study will be I will share it with my colleagues uh, in a conference uh, called ISIC conference, information seeking context in September. I will do that. And also one paper about uh, bonsai and the paper is called Bonsai in the Time of COVID, the miniature, the social and solitary uh, published in a journal. And then I share the link here and people can have a look. And in that paper, I realized that During this pandemic, people shared their stories of their hobbies and what they are passionate about. And in this case, bonsai. And I just explored the comments and the result was fascinating. How useful it is to have a hobby in that time. I employed a method called user-generated content analysis. So the comments that people leave on social media like youtube because there is a massive volume of data over there so you and it's publicly available so you can go and explore them from different aspects you can do quantitative analysis you can do qualitative analysis so yeah and the result was fascinating in terms of the usefulness of having hobbies during difficult times And it's a source of resilience for people, you know, because you are never alone in your hobby. You eventually find the group. You know, it can be virtual or it can be physical. Sooner or later, you will find the group. Mm. It doesn't matter how unique is your hobby because we have something like 230 kinds of hobbies I identified so far, I'm sure it's more it's more than that. So yeah. people in a paper uh, I categorize the hobbies in three groups, those who are just observing and appreciating. So for example, bird watchers, those who are collecting something like stamp collecting or coin collecting, or m- those who are making something. So for example, knitting and uh, knitting groups, And those who are performing, like music, the guitar that you mentioned, and dancing. So Mm. all sorts of activities happening, and it doesn't matter what you are passionate about, there is always a hobby about that. Or you can create one, you know. (laughs) It's open to creating new hobbies. There is no limitation here.
1: This is fascinating because I think your your paper highlights how hobbies or serious leisure and also, information sharing can often be life-affirming and a very satisfying source of ikigai. And I imagine some people really do live for their hobbies. It, it is the thing that they care about most because there's this social context of ibasho. Yeah. And there's this idea of tanoshimi, that it helps you get through the struggles of life. And if you're unfortunate enough to... to be dealing with a crisis it really helps you get through that it's interesting how my community really took off during covid covid was yeah. created the conditions for me to create this virtual eBashol yeah. of ihiga tribe and it's really changed my life and you've maybe re- realized that all i'm really doing is sharing information yes. but it is so meaningful and this is why I love doing the podcasts. I, I get to interview people like you who've taken care and time to, to study a very niche aspect of you know, yeah. <laughs> information sharing amongst bonsai growers. But yeah. you incorporate these themes of ikigai and tanoshimi and ebasho. So your paper or your hope with your paper is that it encourages information professionals that they can use the findings of your study to gain a deeper understanding of hobbyists' information behaviour and serve them more effectively across the GLAM sector. Now, that was a new term for me. So what is the GLAM sector?
0: The GLAM sector is an acronym for galleries, libraries, archives and museums. And the GLAM sector institutions provide access to information resources and deliver information services. Also, they create a unique environment to bring together collections, services, and people from different backgrounds. So GLAM institutions collect, organize, preserve, and disseminate information uh, regarding a wide range of cultural heritage materials, and also we call them memory institutions because they preserve our collective memories. Imagine a society without a glam sector. Uh, that society sooner or later will suffer from historical forgetfulness or uh, social amnesia. So that's playing very important role. And they are like a social and cultural hub to bring people together And and there's a term for that, it's called the third place, because the first place is home, the second place is workplace, and the third place, uh, like public libraries or cafes or parks, it's uh, places that is open to everyone, and people can go there and meet different groups of people and share information and feel safe over there. So glam sector is very important in many ways. And in my research, because every research study should have at least three kinds of uh, contribution, a contribution to policy, practice, and research. So uh, in terms of practice, I need to identify a number of practical implications of what i'm doing Mm -hmm. so and what i'm trying to share with my colleagues in the glam sector is think about people who are involved in serious leisure and provide information they need because they are very good friends of glam sector you know because they use different sources of information so they use libraries they go to galleries they just all these hobbies in one way or another is connected to glam sector. So they are very good friends of uh, libraries and other glam institutions. And so we need to consider them in our information um, services. So for example, a few interviewees mentioned this uh, point to me that if you go to a public library uh, looking for information about the hobby, they usual, you usually find something basic an introduction to something and we need more advanced information I see so yeah I wrote another uh, an article about benefits of serious research for public libraries I share it with you and you can add the link to the podcast
1: yeah I think the slam sector of galleries libraries archives and museums for many people could also be their e whether it's the private e maybe in the okay. case of a, a library where they just go by themselves, but they can have some personal time, they can read, they can research. Or, you know, there are often families who go to galleries together and it's it's something yeah. for them to explore. So they also seem to serve as e So I guess ensuring more information is shared within them yeah. Uh, would be important. This third place could be, yeah, any Bashal. So we've talked quite a bit on this on your paper, but one thing I like to always ask my guests is, "What is their ikigai?" So, what is your ikigai? Yazdan?
0: Uh That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I always suppose my ikigai is learning and teaching, and it's still, I think. Learning and teaching is the core component of my Ikigai. However, in terms of terminology, I can be a little bit more specific now because when I reflect on it, I think my Ikigai is the love of understanding something. So when I talk about learning, I'm talking about understanding of something, a moment of epiphany or saturi when you have an aha moment and you say, wow, that's it. I understood it. So that's my first Ikigai. And then share it with others. Because as soon as I understand something, I can't wait to share it with someone. (laughs) 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 Write a paper about it, attend the podcast like here. Because I can't keep it for myself. I have to share it with someone and then go and find something else. (laughs) So that's my main Ikigai. And basically, in my academic life, it gives me a primary platform to pursue my ikigai of learning and teaching. And also, I have two more sources of ikigai, the joy of emancipation and the joy of observing living creatures, including plants, trees, animals, birds. So that's why I love gardening and mindful walking, uh, to immerse myself in nature to be more present, yeah.
1: It's interesting you mentioned this idea of having an epiphany as an ikigai source. That's what Ken Moggy shared with me on Episode 6, that for him, having an epiphany, a realisation, a deep realisation for him was yeah, very life-affirming, even though it you know, didn't happen very often. It wouldn't happen every week or every month. Yeah. But this other idea of sharing knowledge definitely for me is something I can relate to. I love learning and then sharing it and find great pleasure, but also a, a strong sense of purpose in doing that. But then these other things that are freely available to all of us, connecting with nature, mindful walking, yeah, and all all these little moments. So I really like this idea of Ikigai being a spectrum of all these things in our life, but we can also have other stronger sources, and it could be bonsai growing or learning about something and sharing it with others.
0: Definitely. Yeah. It's like a journey, you know, every time we have a different level of understanding of something. So, for example, I have been reading about serious leisure over the past five, four years, and then Every time I read a paper that I've already read it, I find something new in that because, uh, you know, (laughs) it's uh, like the concept of Ichigo Ichie, we mentioned it before. So because every time I read it, I am a different person and I interpret it in a different context so I can find something new. So although the text is the same, but I am not the same person. I am a different person. Even when I write something Mm -hmm. and I read my own writing, I find something new in that. Because when I write it, I am the writer. But when I read it, I am the reader. You know? (laughs) (laughs) So, So that's fascinating. And in terms of hermeneutics, we make meaning every time we read something. And it's unique, our understanding of a text. It's always unique. It can't happen twice. It's just changing all the time. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's really a wonderful way to end, I think, this, this idea that every time we gain some knowledge, we do change. And hopefully it's for the better or we become, I guess we become more knowledgeable, but we also be, have this understanding that there is so much to learn and we can a- approach life with a beginner mind. This has been a, an Ichigo Ichie podcast for me, Yasdan. Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> me too. Thank you very much. That was excellent. I really enjoyed the, the discussion. Yeah, thank you.
1: My pleasure. So how can people reach out to you? Uh, do you have a website or should we link to your LinkedIn profile? Or
0: Yeah, I have a profile website at, CSU uh, website, I share the link, uh, and then my email and LinkedIn, yeah. If you search my name on Google, all these places that I am, and I will be more than happy to reply emails uh, from people who listen to this episode.
1: Awesome. All right, we'll add all those links to the show notes. So this is episode 40 of the Ikigai podcast, and thank you very much for joining me today, Yasdan.
0: Thank you very much,
1: Nick. This episode was brought to you by the Find Your Ikigai course. Developed in consultation with Japan's leading ikigai researchers, the Find Your Ikigai course is the only culturally accurate and evidence-based practical guide to the ikigai concept. To learn more about the Find Your Ikigai
0: course, please visit ikigaitribe.com.